You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Types of CSR Change Agents These two factors, values alignment and the CSR concept, were fairly cross-cutting motivators that I identified in my research. However, it is also possible to identify four fairly distinctive types of CSR professional based on how they derive satisfaction from their work. In practice, every individual draws on all four types, but the centre of gravity rests with one, representing the mode of operating in which that individual feels most comfortable, fulfilled or satisfied. The first type of CSR change agent is the expert. Experts find their motivation through engaging with projects or systems, giving expert input, focusing on technical excellence, seeking uniqueness through specialization and pride in problem-solving abilities. To illustrate, one expert-type CSR professional said, There were a couple of projects that I did that I found very exciting. It was very exciting to get all the bits and pieces in place, then commission them and see them starting to work. Another expert said, I usually get that sense of meaning in work when I've finished a product, say like an environmental report, and you see, you know, I've put in a really a lot of effort here, and now you have the results. Or you do a series of community consultations, and you get the feedback. The second type of CSR change agent is the facilitator. Common themes among facilitators are deriving motivation from transferring knowledge and skills, focusing on people development, creating opportunities for staff, changing the attitudes or perceptions of individuals, and paying attention to team building. For example, one facilitator type CSR professional said, If you enjoy working with people, this is a sort of functional role where you have direct interaction. You can see people being empowered, having increased knowledge, and you can see what that eventually leads to. Another facilitator explained that the part of my work that I've enjoyed most is training, where I get the opportunity to work with a group of people, to interact with people at a very personal level. You can see how things start to get clear for them in terms of understanding issues and how that applies to what they do. The third type of CSR change agent is the catalyst. For catalysts, motivation is associated with initiating change, giving strategic direction, influencing leadership, tracking organizational performance, and having a big-picture perspective. One catalyst-type CSR professional claimed, The type of work that I am doing is giving direction in terms of where the company is going. So it can almost become a life purpose to steer the company in a direction that you believe is personally right as well. Another said, I like getting things changed. My time is spent trying to influence people. The really interesting thing is trying to get managing directors, plant managers, business leaders and sales guys to think differently and to change what they do. That is quite different from the fourth type of CSR change agent, the activist. 
For activists, motivation comes from being aware of broader social and environmental issues, feeling part of the community, making a contribution to poverty eradication, fighting for a just cause, and leaving a legacy of improved conditions in society. One activist-type CSR professional said, It's also about the issue of being poor. It actually touches you. You see these people living in appalling conditions, the shacks, the drinking water is so dirty, and there's no running water at all. You see those kinds of things, and it hits you, and you think, what can you do? Another confessed, I think my purpose here is to help others in some way and leave a legacy for my kids to follow. I could leave a legacy behind where I actually set up a school, a kids' school, or a campus for disadvantaged people, taking street kids out and doing something, building homes for single parents. Dynamics of CSR change agents The different types of CSR change agents find some resonance in the broader management literature. The catalyst type clearly draws on a strategic role and applies it to sustainability and responsibility, bringing in a lot of ideas from change management. Arguably, the facilitator finds echoes in the servant leadership concept, while activists are probably best described in the work on social and environmental entrepreneurship. There are also glimpses of the expert in much of the more technical scholarship on environmental and quality management. It is important to note, however, that the CSR change agent's typology is dynamic. In the same way that sources of meaning in life can vary over the life cycle or other changing circumstances, there is ample evidence to suggest that CSR professionals' default types can change as well. One CSR manager I interviewed seemed to have shifted from being an activist to a facilitator, moving from political campaigning when he was a business ethics lecturer to business training and lecturing in a large consultancy. Another had moved from expert to catalyst, doing laboratory work on ecotoxicity, then strategic policy advice in a safety, health and environmental centre. And yet another had moved from expert to facilitator, a technical environmental manager for a chemical company who became the head of a team of sustainability consultants. For some, but not all, CSR change agents, their formal job roles and their type are aligned, as in the examples cited above. Hence there is a suggestion that either people are naturally attracted to roles that fit with their change agent types, or that their roles shape the meaning they derive, or perhaps both. One manager explained that, in your career or in your work, the manager must be able to swing from one type to the other. Another important influence is organisational context. For instance, one CSR professional observed that the organisational dynamics of corporates require conformism to the organisational culture, which to a large degree requires maintenance of the status quo. This makes it difficult for activists. Career stage or life cycle is another important factor. One of the things that you have to bear in mind, said one of the managers, is how much individual flexibility you get in working environments. I think at an earlier stage in someone's career, no matter what their typology might be, they don't necessarily yet have the luxury of finding themselves in the position that gives expression to their preference. Making a difference. 
Beyond simply improving our understanding of CSR change agents, there are several practical uses for the typology. The most obvious applications occur at an individual and team level, where benefits for CSR managers, managers of CSR teams and human resource managers exist. For CSR managers, the typology acts as a prompt for individuals to reflect on their most natural type or mix of types. This allows them to think about what sort of roles they derive the most satisfaction from and to consciously compare this to their formal role. If there is not a natural fit between their type and their formal role, it may help to explain work frustrations or lack of motivation. For managers of a CSR team, the typology helps to cast light on the mix of team members from the perspective of their different sources of motivation. This can influence the way in which individuals are managed and allocated tasks, as well as the general management style adopted. For example, for a team full of experts, incentives that recognize quality may be far more effective than for a catalyst-heavy team where tracking of strategic goals may be more motivational. The manager of a CSR team may decide that there is merit in having a balance of all four types represented, which will in turn affect recruitment decisions. One of the underlying messages of my CSR change agency research is that companies stand to gain a lot by going beyond the business case for CSR. In other words, by justifying sustainability and responsibility efforts on the basis of values, or what some call the moral case. Taking this position, in addition to rather than instead of the business case, will enable companies to tap into a powerful source of motivation, namely the satisfaction that CSR managers, and in all likelihood many other employees, derive from the alignment of work with values. Ultimately, the typology is a recognition that all of us working in CSR are motivated and satisfied by different things. At the same time, we are all trying to make a difference. And being able to make a difference through our work is an immense privilege. As one of the CSR people I interviewed put it, I think people that are working in the area of sustainable development have a great sense of purpose, in the sense of assisting people and making a difference, leaving a legacy and having strong values. To give a more practical example, someone working in the pharmaceutical industry told me about a massive program where they were distributing 6 billion tablets to wipe out lymphatic fibrosis. This is a type of elephantitis disease in Africa. Definitely you feel like, wow, we're making a difference, he said. We're not just pumping our toothpaste. Another, working in professional services, said, There's making a difference in terms of what you suggest a company does, but then there's the personal making a difference, which is very different. That's about putting your money where your mouth is, where you're personally committing your time, your own effort. And of course, most of the time, we are not contemplating our navel. We're out there fighting the good fight. One of my colleagues said, There's so much to do. I haven't got time to think about the meaning of life. The alarm clock goes off and I'm out. Just go, just go. I get home and I think, what the hell have I done today? But I've been incredibly busy, phoning, talking, making presentations. It's just when you stand back that you see that perhaps you are making a difference but most of the time, you just do it. To scare or to inspire. 
So how do we just do it? What is the most effective strategy? And in particular, how do you get the balance between sharing the bad news, in other words, the state of the world, and the good news, the innovative solutions? Betty Sue Flowers, co-author of Presence, told me that if you attempt to scare people with the enormity of the problems, the tendency is simply to give up. When you dispirit people, when you remove the spirit, you also remove the capacity to change. This is a common refrain and indeed a dilemma. We can't deny the severity of the crises that we face, and yet we can't paralyze people with fear. I'm impaled on this every day of my life at the moment, Jonathan Porritt told me. What do you think? I think we still owe it to reality and to integrity in any communications process to share the empirical reality. But how do you come out of that without leaving people spread-eagled with despair and just utterly disempowered? Porritt went on to say, We're trying to create these upbeat, opportunity-driven wish lists about what would happen if business seized hold of this set of opportunities here and started to do things completely differently over there, and if politicians started to construct societal and economic responses based on a world not on growth hormones. But then you look at the scale of their responses and you set it against the scale of the analysis, and of course it looks frail. It looks insubstantial in terms of where we need to be. So I think the mechanisms we're using are the only ones available to us, but we haven't got it right yet. Whether we can get there, building, building, gradually over a period of time, or whether we need some shocks in the system to accelerate the emergence of that positive energy, that for me is still a hard one to call. Jorgen Randers, co-author of Limits to Growth, is equally ambivalent. He says, Are scare tactics better than carrots? There are groups pursuing both avenues. I think I've moved to thinking that having a positive view has a stronger motivational force than scare tactics. But then you can ask the question, is it possible to come up with sufficient carrots to make society act? And it looks as if support from some scare tactics or some of the disasters would help. The 21st Century Living Project, undertaken by Okona, in conjunction with Homebase and the Eden Project, may provide some answers. Based on an 18-month study of 100 households in the UK, the findings show that most people will act, given the right tools and information specifically for their needs. They explain that the data say clearly that environmental values are not a good predictor of action. The message we got back, they said, was clear – we can get on with cutting our environmental footprint without having to win the battle for the long-term soul of the nation. Don't browbeat people, don't frighten them, just show them where they are wasting money and resources, and they will change themselves. Frame the topic like this, and everyone is interested, young and old, wealthy and poor, green or not. Like all of us in the CSR field, I've also been grappling with the issue of whether it is best to scare or inspire. In my case, however, this was also critical in a post-apartheid South Africa. The country was in the grip of pessimism after the euphoria of its political miracle had evaporated and the massive challenges of social upliftment became clear. This was the subject of my book called South Africa Reasons to Believe, in which my co-author Guy Lundy and I conclude that there are two basic ingredients to being positive. 
The first is to recognise that our pessimistic views are generally skewed by unbalanced media reporting. We have to remember that our mental state is determined by what we focus on. It's not the media that is lying, it's just that they are painting a picture of the world that is highly selective. They are like manic depressive artists patching together a collage, using bits and pieces of real events, most of which happen to be dark or disturbing. So we need to start exposing ourselves to more of the positive news stories in order to get a more balanced perspective of what is going on around us. The second ingredient to being positive is to recognise that our attitude influences the world around us, for better or worse. The neutral scientist in the white coat is a myth. He or she does not exist. The observer and the observed are not separate. They are always inextricably linked. Everything we believe or think or value changes the world around us. It even affects our physical health. Attitudes are like lenses that colour what we see. But they are also like yeast in bread. They have a very real visible effect on the outcome of whatever we are trying to make work, whether it is a family, a business, a nation or even a whole planet. This is not just a philosophical point. Optimism comes from actively engaging with life's challenges.